The only thing is the command key pops off a lot. Mm. But otherwise, like, the rest of it's, like, yeah, sound. That's why I have keyboards. Yeah, you can get you some command strips. Command strips. Like the 3M hooky Velcro hang command strips. Sorry. <laughs> it was a perfectly average joke that you ruined. <laughs> <laughs> You're here to make the jokes. I'm here to ruin them. <laughs> We're a great duo. <laughs> Hello and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed. I am one of your hosts, Steffi Carey, and I'm joined today by another thought botter, Joelle Kinville. Joelle, thanks so much for being on the show today. Thanks for inviting me. So Joelle, you've been at ThoughtBot for just over seven years. Yep. Excellent. And I understand that you're very passionate about great software design. You also wrote 10 blog posts for the ThoughtBot blog last year, which is a very impressive number. I'm really curious as to how you did that and how you managed to write so many articles in one year. So writing, especially that number 10, was a personal goal of mine for last year. And I think really what allows that to happen is what we have here at ThoughtBot that we call investment time. So we consult four days a week for clients. And then on Fridays, we have what we call an investment day to improve ourselves, improve the company, and improve the wider programming community. And one of the wonderful things that we have is combining that with a culture of openness and sharing. And so if you learn something, we'll try to make it as public as makes sense, rather than sort of defaulting to making things private. So if you learn something, make it a blog post, not an internal memo. If you build a tool, make it open source, not just an internal thing, and so on. And yeah. so having that regular time to both sort of research and try out things, but also to share them, uh, some kind of artifact with the wider world makes a huge difference in the ability to write on a regular basis. Yeah, I've noticed that you do a really great job with that on Twitter as well, where you will craft these excellent demonstrations of a new design pattern or something new that you've learned that you want to share. I've bookmarked several of your tweets for those reasons. They're fabulous. So I love how much you are taking time to acknowledge when you're learning something new and then you are sharing that with the world. So you started out with the goal of 10 blog posts. Was there any particular reason that you were going for 10? I chose 10 because it seemed difficult, but achievable. So it was pushing beyond what I might normally do, but not an impossible goal. And did you already have any thoughts around what you were going to be writing about? How do you typically decide when a topic seems like a really good blog post? So I like to keep topics that are a little bit more practical, but oftentimes maybe has some slightly bigger picture twist to it. So the easiest articles to write are the ones that are very sort of straightforward how-tos. Here's a problem. Here's how you solve it. Those can be written really quickly. I tend to prefer writing articles that also have some broader picture idea that I can bring out of it. So here's a problem. Here's how we solve it. And then here's a principle that applied here that we can also apply in other situations. Of course, what's more difficult with that is that whenever you try to speak a little bit more broadly, there are million caveats and like people tend to lose nuance when they repeat what you say. So I feel always the need to hedge a lot of my recommendations and advice because people will drop that when they reshare. 
Yeah, it's hard to find that right balance of where you have something that you want to share, but you want to make sure it can't be twisted or misconstrued. And then there's all the scope creep that can come into writing your blog post because then there's so much more you could talk about and expand into. Do you have any like sort of tips or tricks on like keeping momentum going for a blog post? Do you find that you typically sit down and crank it out in just one day, the investment day? Or is it something that you're working on a little each day? So I mostly focus on it on during our investment days. Usually I'll sort of have, if I'm excited about an idea, it's almost like a flash of inspiration sounds a little bit too, you know, magical. But, you know, I encountered a topic either in a conversation with someone else here at ThoughtBot or maybe it's a problem that we solved during the week on a client project, or maybe it's just an idea that I've had in the back of my head. And I'll usually write something down, like just throw a bunch of text at the screen. So it might be a random mix of some headings, some code snippets, a paragraph of text here, a quote there. It's very random. And that's sort of my first path at everything, it's just putting a lot of information. And I try to do that ideally as soon as possible after I get really excited about a topic because that's when I have all this information I want to put and I have it in my head. And then afterwards, it might be like the following week, I can come back and do a lot of like heavy editing to make it in a content that fits well for for a blog post. But sometimes I will then have had excitement about another idea. And so I might accumulate several of these sort of half-written, there's a lot of content on a page And then if I'm on a Friday where I'm not feeling particularly excited about anything, I will pick one of those and put in all the work to edit. Because I feel like I can sort of jump back into a post like that's already like has the content, but it's just not in a format that works well for a blog post and pretty much any time and do the work of editing. That doesn't really take excitement or like being right in the problem you can sort of just pick it up. And at that point, it's just about putting in the time and the work. And so I sort of fit that in afterwards as makes sense. That sounds great. I really like that approach of capture the essence and the structure of the topic in the article right when you have that inspiration, you have the energy, and then you have, I want to call it like some low-hanging fruit for when you can come back to that later and sort of pick it up. You've already got the main content that's there, but you can flush it out a bit more or if you need to, like you said, edit and clean it up. So that seems like a really nice sort of list to go back and continue grooming. We also have a really nice Trello board where we keep a lot of those ideas. So if there's anyone who's looking to write a blog post, but they're not sure what topic or they need some inspiration, when other folks have really great ideas, they'll add it as a ticket to our Trello board so folks can go and pull ideas from there. And then we also review each other's blog posts, which I think is such huge value to get input from the rest of the team before it goes out into the world and also helps us keep the idea of like shipping. So that way it's in a PR, it has review, and then we want to get it out as soon as possible. So it it helps me with like driving that forward. It is really nice, the process that we use, because all of our blog posts are markdown documents in a GitHub repository. And so we use our same regular sort of flow that we would use for a code PR where we just write a document, I open a pull request, and then other people who are interested in reviewing it will then just leave comments on a line-by-line basis, and then I can make changes. It's all versioned with Git. So it's a very nice content management system for us. 
Definitely. So along those lines, in addition to being very passionate about good software design, in addition to sharing content, you're also really passionate about people, which is something I very much admire about you and something I've noticed that you really look out for others in the office. You're always encouraging folks to either speak at local meetups, to speak at conferences. You also head up our apprentice program here in the Boston office. And I know it's conference season and we're still near the beginning of the year. So I imagine there are a number of people who are very excited to give their first conference talk or maybe it's their second, but they're still kind of new to the game. And how many conferences have you spoken at? I know it's quite a Uh, list. I think it's five or six maybe over the past maybe four years. And what's the theme for those conferences that you've spoken at? It's been kind of uh, all over the place, but it's mostly conferences centered around the Elm programming language. I've been very involved in that community. You are our resident Elm ninja in the office for sure. (laughs) So speaking at those conferences, how did you get started? What made you decide to speak at your first conference? So I think like many people, it's been a professional goal of mine for a long time. And I submitted to multiple conferences and just kept getting rejected all the time. These were Ruby conferences because that was a lot of the work that I was doing professionally. And then I started getting into the Elm programming language and the first Elm conf started and I submitted a a talk there and got accepted. And that was my first talk ever, which was really exciting. That I didn't realize that part. So that must have been tough to like, you're ready to speak at a conference, you're submitting topics, but the Ruby conferences, I imagine there's also a higher number of applicants that are submitting to the Ruby conferences, given it's a larger community than the Elm community as well. Especially, I think, and I don't know what the numbers were back then, but it was definitely a smaller community is still smaller than Ruby, but it is bigger today. Do you recall what your first conference talk was about? Yes. I was talking about how to do random something generation. So Elm, for those who are not familiar, is a purely functional language, which means that anytime you call a function with the same arguments, you expect to get back the same response back. And the problem with like a random function is that if you call it every time and you get the same result back, you don't have a random function. The whole point is to have it not return the same thing. So those two sort of goals seem at odds with each other. And so Elm has this very different approach to doing random generation of different things than you would see in a lot of more traditionally imperative languages. And that was something that I was learning and it really tripped me up. And when I figured it out, I was like, you know what? I think this would make a good conference talk. I should share this with other people. And so I pitched an idea for it and it got accepted. And you've been speaking at conferences ever since. Yeah, yeah. I think one thing that really helped with that first talk was it wasn't a purely technical talk. I had wrapped it in a kind of a fun theme. So one of my personal hobbies is reading about history. And I had been reading about the ancient Roman Republic at the time. And being sort of the eternal optimist, I thought to myself, oh, this is really fun. What if I combined my interest in history and my learning a new programming language, which was Elm at the time, and tried to write a program that would simulate the political system of the Roman Republic? That sounds amazing. (laughs) Uh, I did not get very far on that project. It turns out that the ancient Roman political system was very driven by family. And so I thought to myself, I should probably first manage individuals and families and children and marriages, things like that, because those all have a big impact on who you're supporting and who you're opposing. 
And going down that rabbit hole ended up saying, I would like to have, when I have a new child who's born in this simulation, I want them to have a randomly generated yet realistic name. And so the only part of this project that ever got built was the random name generator, but that was historically accurate. And so the talk that I pitched was about building this historically accurate Roman name generator and the things I learned along the way and how to do randomness in a purely functional language. That's a very funny, specific lead up to generating random names. <laughs> did you pitch it that way when you reached out to ElmConf and you gave them the topic? Did you mention that you were taking that particular route or did you say you wanted to talk about random generation in Elm? I did pitch it that way. So I titled the talk Rolling Random Romans because I liked the alliteration. And I even I went all the way in. I'd gotten some advice around giving a talk and someone had told me, if you give a talk, try to tell a story. And so I went all in on that and actually sort of pitched this sort of wrapped in a narrative. So the idea is that for some reason, you're a software developer who lives in ancient Rome and the Roman goddess of childbirth comes to you and says she's tired of like naming all the kids. The population is booming and she wants to start automating. And so she hires you to build a system to automatically name the children in Rome. And I put that in the abstract. So when you submit to a, a CFP, which is a call for proposals, there's usually a few different fields. The abstract field is sort of really where you have to make your really strong pitch because that is also what the audience will see typically. So it's very short and you're trying to sell your talk, make it interesting. And then there's a few other fields where you might give more details for the committee to say, here's where I plan on going with this. Here's maybe a surprise reveal at the end. You might even put some talk structure into it, things like that. It varies by conference. But yeah, I put the story in the abstract. So this is what the audience would have seen. And I think that really helps sell the talk. Yeah, I imagine that's really helpful for the folks that are reading through all the talk proposals to see something that jumps out at them and tells them the story and also kind of gives them a teaser of they don't know the exact contents of the talk, but they already know it's going to be an interesting plot as to where you're going with the talk. And then it's still going to have a very applicable aspect to the talk as well for folks that are interested in Elm. I received some similar advice from Sarah Cassidy in our New York City office when we were working together on the health tech workshop that we were performing at the end of last year. And she'd mentioned that to me as well as we were working on the content. She was like, well, let's think about what's the narrative? Like, what's the arc of the story? What do we want to start with? What's the middle look like? And then the end of it. And that was so helpful in meeting up with her each week when we were rehearsing is that we kept focusing, okay, what's the general story? Because there's a bunch of different angles we could go and different things we can talk about, but always gravitating back towards that cohesive feel of what we're going to talk about and that message that we wanted the audience to leave with. So based on the different talks that you've given and the different conferences that you've submitted talks to, it sounds like sharing that narrative and that story is one really good approach to getting your talk accepted. Do you have any other ideas around how to get your talk accepted? I think sort of along that line, if you can make your talk just a little bit weird or unusual, it can help it stand out. So one that I gave last year at RailsConf, I was talking about how to give a good technical interview. And in that talk, the way it was pitched was initially we were thinking there's a lot of people that talk about interviews and it can be a little bit sort of run of the mill, a little bit boring. 
So to make it stand out, I thought, what if instead of talking about how to give a good interview, we show it? And so the entire pitch for that talk was, we're going to do a live, it's scripted, we're not interviewing someone from the audience, but we're going to do a live interview on stage and show how ThoughtBot does our interview. Come and watch. That would be terrifying. Be like, can I have a volunteer from the audience, please? (laughs) (laughs) I think that's what interview nightmares are made of. (laughs) Definitely. In our case, uh, so I gave it with Rachel, uh, who also works here at ThoughtBot, and you know, we practiced it. It was scripted. So this wasn't just a, hey, can we have a volunteer situation? But I think that really helped us stand out. And especially at a big conference like RailsCon, where there's a lot of competition, I think that was a big key to getting accepted. Yeah, that's a great point. Because like you said, that's a fairly common topic, I imagine, something that people are comfortable talking about and want to share their stories, but then to find an unconventional way to share that information so it really sticks with the audience. Great. So, so far we have tell a story and be a little weird (laughs) is the top advice. There's also don't be afraid to submit more than one talk proposal per conference. Most conferences are totally fine with you submitting multiple proposals. And I find that most people don't realize you can do that. I typically submit probably between three and five proposals per conference. In many conferences, I just don't get accepted at all. But in others, I do get accepted And of course, I don't have a time machine to go back and see what would happen if I only submitted one. But the ones that get selected when I submit multiple and I do get accepted are not always the ones I thought they would want. Like I might submit five and think, you know what? I'm pretty sure this one is good. And the fifth one is just like, uh, I had an idea, but they'll probably not want it. And that's the one that gets picked. That's really interesting. Do you happen to have an example of where you submit a couple different topics and which one surprised you that was picked? So a couple years ago at Elm Europe, uh, I'd submitted a, a whole bunch. I had a few that I really was excited to talk about. And then at some point I had a conversation with someone on their community Slack about how to deal with uncertainty in their code. Elm has a slightly different approach to dealing with what would be like a null or a nil in many other languages. And I like gave them some tips and things and turned that into a conference proposal. And that is the one that got picked. Are you referring to the use of maybe in Elm? Correct. Interesting. Which I was surprised about. I wasn't thinking that would be the the first pick. What made you think they wouldn't pick that one? I think there were some other things that I had put more thought into that I thought I'd really sort of crafted for this conference. I thought this is what they're going to like. And this one was almost more of an afterthought. But it is the one they picked. And it actually turned out really well. I'm glad they picked it because I think actually this might be one of the talks I'm most proud of. That's a really fun idea is take a couple of topics that you are excited to talk about and then let the conference owners decide which topic seems best because they'll have the higher view to know what other talks are also making space for. So then they can find one that fits nicely with everything else that's taking place. It's also sometimes you'll have multiple people that submit talks on the same topic. And so if someone else has submitted a talk that's similar to yours and the conference decides to go with that other person, if you have multiple talks that you've submitted, you're not immediately eliminated. Even though the talk idea was good, if somebody else, their proposal was just a little bit more tightly edited and they sort of edged you out, you still get a chance on another topic. And that's definitely happened to me where I've submitted a talk proposal that gets rejected. And then I go to the conference, I'm like, oh, someone else is giving this talk. 
that I had proposed. And I imagine it was a situation like that where we both had similar ideas and they submitted theirs and theirs was probably just a little bit more well presented. So they went with theirs. Definitely. So for folks that are new to proposing to a conference or new to speaking at a conference, would you recommend any particular conference that they get started at or be their first conference to give a talk at? I've been particularly impressed with the folks at ElmConf. They just go above and beyond anything I've ever seen to support their first-time speakers. So they will match you up with a speaking coach. They have someone who will help you with your talk preparation who's a professional speaking coach. They also will pair you up with a speaker alum who will kind of uh, check in with you every couple weeks for a few months leading up to the conference. And they're there to help you maybe write your content, listen to you rehearse, help you refine your ideas, really whatever's necessary. Maybe even help you with your designing your slide deck, marketing your talk a little bit talk about building an intro, closing a talk, what it's like to be on stage. Do they let you practice on stage? Do you know if that's a thing? I'm not sure. So I was there the first year when they didn't have quite as many of these things in place. Every year they add something else for first-time speakers that's really nice. And so, yeah, I'm not sure if you can practice on the stage or not. But you do have the ability to rehearse with this other person who's been a speaker before as well as you have one session with this speaking coach. One thing that is really nice as a, as a speaker in general, but it's fun as a first-time speaker in particular, is attending the speaker dinner beforehand. And most conferences do this, but it's really fun at small conferences because then you get to sort of meet up with all the other speakers who are all really passionate about what they're talking about. Likely, if you've been in that programming community for a little bit, You might be meeting up with some people that you really admire and look up to in a setting where it's very easy to sort of have a natural conversation as opposed to trying to walk up to them at a conference, like after a talk, that can be definitely intimidating. And so it's just a wonderful time to get to know the other speakers. And the organizers generally will tell you some things about how things are going to work the next day and really try to set you at ease in the run up to the conference itself. And once you're actually at the the conference, one really fun thing of being a speaker is that people will come up to you and talk to you. You don't have to be constantly reaching out, which I think for the introverts among us is very nice. Yeah, it kind of helps ease some of that social pressure where you gave a topic that people know they are welcome to come up and continue that conversation with you. I really value when conferences invest heavily in their speakers in that way. Not only the conferences that will do their best to cover all the costs for folks that are interested in speaking at conferences, because not everyone can necessarily afford the time off from work or afford the flight out there. But then they're also investing in that person's journey and giving their first conference talk to make sure it's a very positive experience. So hopefully they'll come back and they'll keep giving talks But it also results in a higher quality conference for the people that are attending because they've also invested in their speakers and they're helping their speakers really shine and do their best. So that sounds amazing. I really respect what they're doing. And I haven't given a conference talk myself, but when I decide to give one, I imagine I would look at that conference first just based on the support that they would provide me. Yeah, they are just wonderful folks with great support. I believe they also have every year a couple slots that are reserved for first-time speakers. So they make it even easier for people that are looking to give their first talk to sort of break through. Very cool. 
So one thing that I found is maybe intimidating as a first-time speaker is the CFP process itself. Particularly if you have submitted a few times and you get rejected, there's kind of this, you know, it's a black box or sort of magical system where you just, you put some content in and you just get rejections out and you don't know, is it because the content was bad? Is it because it didn't fit with the conference? Like the only data you have is that you submitted twice to different conferences and got rejected. And so it's very hard to figure out what you've done right, what you've done wrong, how you could improve for the next one in a system like that. And it's it's tricky because you can't see what everybody else does. Everybody sort of does this in isolation. And until you've built up the repertoire of having submitted multiple times and some got accepted and some got rejected, it's hard to build a feel for what works and what doesn't. Yeah, definitely. That would be really hard to sort of put yourself out there, take that risk, and then just flat out get rejected and not know why you were rejected because then you also don't know how to approach the next one. Is there anything you need to tweak? Do you need to try a different topic? Do you need to try a different approach with telling your story? So how do you, do you have any thoughts or recommendations on how folks sort of handle that rejection or how best they can go about the CFP process based on what you've learned so far? There are a couple of good blog posts out there that talk about how to write a good CFP. So there's one by, I believe, Sarah May and one by, I believe it's by Noel Rappin, sort of talking about particularly the process of submitting to RailsConf. And those are really helpful. And they have a couple little snippets in there for examples of what might make a good conference talk. And those were really inspiring for me when I was first writing. I've actually been working on a blog post that will probably be live by the time this show airs, where I've taken all of my submissions and just made them public. And there's quite a few of them because I've submitted to a lot of conferences, not always got accepted. So the blog post comments on a few of them, some of the successful ones, some of the ones that didn't get accepted, and you know some lessons I learned from them. And then I also just give links to the raw text of pretty much everything I've ever submitted so that folks get some kind of library to compare against and be like, okay, this thing worked, this thing didn't work and have some idea of what a CFP submission might look like. That sounds incredibly helpful. I'm very excited for that. We'll definitely include a link to the blog post in the show notes as well as some of the other blog posts that you've mentioned. But to have that, as you mentioned, like a library to look at, because you've also been through that process where you submitted a topic and it was rejected and other folks can see this looks like a really good proposal and maybe it was rejected just because, as you'd mentioned before, someone else is also covering that topic and they just happen to get chosen to cover that topic instead of yours. So it's going to be really nice to, to have that to look at. And that's gracious of you to be so honest and sort of share, like, here are the things that were accepted and the rejected. And that's just not painting the rosy kind of picture, but also being very honest about the stuff that didn't get through. It really paints a bigger picture of sometimes you look at people and you wonder, wow, how do they get into so many conferences? And it may look like they just get accepted everywhere, when in reality, you know, for many of us, it's a numbers game. You submit to a lot of places. Also, even not just for as a speaker, but also for a talk idea, just because a talk gets rejected at one conference doesn't mean it's a bad idea. And so I will often, if at one conference turns me down for a talk idea, I will resubmit it, probably tweaked a little bit, to a different conference. And maybe it better fits what they're looking for. Sometimes I just get rejected all around and then might retire the talk. But one of the things that's nice by seeing everything, including the rejections, is that you can see some of those patterns. 
Yeah, that sounds excellent. I also like the idea of caring for a topic and tweaking it a little bit for a different audience. Because as you mentioned, it may be perfect for one audience, but not perfect for another. So it lowers the effort that you're also placing into this while you can try the same topic with maybe like five different conferences and see who's interested in it. So changing course just a a bit, I believe you're recently working on a client project where you were helping them upgrade their Rails version to a newer version of Rails. And I'd love to dive into the specifics because I think you were doing one of the first code audits that we've done here in the Boston office, which is a newer service that we started offering where we will dive into a client's code base and then give them recommendations on areas that we think would be best to clean up or areas to focus on. Yes. So this was the first code audit project that I had done. We've done sort of, as a company, these things sort of informally in the past, but we've now made an official kind of service out of it. This was the first time that I was doing one. It was a client with an older code base, was a Rails 3 project, and they were sort of concerned about possible security issues and dependency issues, things like that. And as with many projects that are in that place, really struggling to upgrade. Sometimes when you're that far back, it's just difficult to get the momentum to move forward. And one of the things that often happens is that you start sort of a long-running branch and you maybe get part of the way through the upgrade. Maybe you make it to Rails 4 and then other things happen and it stalls out and then it's just so stale that you can't really reuse any of that work. And then now you're back to square one and you're still on a Rails 3 application. So to kind of bring some additional context to the project that you were working on, how big of an application were you working on? How big is the team? Are they still trying to push out a lot of features, but they also really needed help with the upgrade? How did all of that unfold as you were coming onto the project? So it's a small team, but it was a larger Rails application. On the audit side, there were two of us from ThoughtBot that came in and spent two weeks just walking through all of the code. And then particularly the thing that we deliver at the end of the the project is a document outlining various things. And so we talked about various different parts of the application and then also included, I believe it was a 27-step upgrade plan. Say like, here are all the little steps that you can take that will move you towards being on Rails 6 or the, the latest Rails. That's quite a lengthy document. How did you go about assessing their project Like, so if you have the project for the first day and you know you're going to give them feedback, that seems like a very big task to know where to start looking. So what was kind of your process of where did you start to figure out what are some of the the biggest, most important changes that need to be made and also identifying some of the lower hanging fruit? So there's a few things that we know going in that are sort of things that change from Rails 3 to 4 to 5 to 6. And so those are some things to immediately check for. Are you using some older sort of almost Rails 2 style routing helpers? Are you using some old deprecated active record finders? Things like that. The gem file is a big one because likely you have a lot of dependencies that are out of date. You might even be using some gems that are completely abandoned and have never been upgraded to Rails 4 or 5 or 6 or whatever. Sometimes there might be just another gem that does the same job, but that came in later and sort of took over as the community's default. And you might want to switch to that. Sometimes it's just that was abandoned and nothing came to replace it. One of the difficulties that happens when you stay behind is because 
the pool of gems that you can use becomes smaller and smaller, particularly if you want to not have security vulnerabilities. And so you might desperately need an upgrade or you might want to bring in a new gem to your Rails app, but then you find out that it's not compatible with Rails 3 because you know Rails 3 was out, is it 10 years ago? Not quite, nine years ago. And so you need to find a way to, to bring it in. And unfortunately, what many people decide to do is to fork the gem to try to get it compatible with their version of Rails. I think that would be one of the scariest approaches to try to continue to stay at your point in time without actually upgrading, because at that point, you're already behind and there's some pain in that. But then if you're also forking, you are now responsible for maintaining that path. It is much harder to upgrade at that point. So that feels like the kind of scariest option at the point. You wrote a blog post recently about technical debt, and you'd mentioned in there it's a bit like cooking the frog, where all these small little changes, if you're the frog in the pot, you don't notice as it's slowly getting hotter and hotter and hotter. And forking definitely feels like one of those where it's like in the moment, it might get you through for the next couple of days, but you've definitely just turned it up to boil and you're going to feel pain from it later. Definitely. If you don't upgrade the day of a release of a new Rails version, you're going to be 100% fine. Even within a year, you're probably going to be fine. But as you fall further and further behind, all these little tasks are going to get slightly more painful. Then when you come to being so far behind that you need to fork gems, then it's definitely becoming a lot more painful. But at that point, doing all the upgrades can feel like such a big insurmountable task where it's like, well, we might have to dedicate you know, two months or a year of engineering time to get upgraded that the decision to fork a gem that might just take a couple days you know, makes sense. Unfortunately, that's just piling up even more technical debt, which will make it even harder to upgrade the next time you're faced with that decision. In that blog post that you mentioned, I'm talking about technical debt and then did a bit of a case study specifically on upgrades. And I described the situation of forking dependencies to try to stay compatible with obsolete versions of your framework. In this metaphor of technical debt, it being like taking out a high interest loan to try to make your mortgage payment that month, which sort of keeps you afloat for the moment, but you're really going to pay for it in the future. Definitely. So what were some of the suggestions that you had in the code audit? Oh, and I'm also curious, how much time did you spend on the project? Was this for a couple of weeks or how long? It was two people for two weeks that we spent during the audit. Cool. And then what were some of the high levels? So we've talked about going to the gym file as well, and then looking for some of the obvious things that you can upgrade that you know you're going to need in the latest Rails version, and then finding ways to incrementally ship those changes. I really like that approach that you're highlighting where you find the smallest iterable changes that you can and get those done and get those pushed out to production. Because then you can make small steps towards upgrading towards a big version change. And I'm curious, how did that also work with the test suite? Did you feel like you had a lot of tests there to sort of like be at the back of the application to guide that upgrade to know that things weren't going to break? Was that also part of the code audit to determine if there needed to be some extra tests so that way you could feel more confident about the upgrade? Yes, we did look at the test suite as part of the code audit, and we did highlight some issues that were there. So part of that 27-step plan at various points was, okay, we need to make this particular fix to the test suite And it might be something like we need to upgrade to a new version of RSpec because it's no longer compatible, or it might be we need to add more coverage to this area so that we feel confident when the upgrade happens. It's interesting in that 
I don't feel it's controversial to say that an upgrade like this should be done in small incremental steps. And yet every project I've been on that has been a a Rails upgrade project, people seem to always want to try the long-running branch. And I've just seen that go poorly so many times. And there's definitely, there are cases where a long-running branch makes sense. But as you were saying, it's just so much more valuable to have the small iterations because you can make a change and ship it to master and now you've locked in that win. So even if you say only managed to get from Rails 3 to Rails 4 and now you have to stop because some other urgent work came through, you've made it forward and maybe you've even removed some security vulnerabilities that you had or now you don't depend on the fork gems, you can rely on the community support gems and sure you're not completely out of the hole but you're a lot further along than you were, and you can always come back and keep building on that foundation that you've laid, as opposed to long-running branches, which tend to go stale, unfortunately. Yeah, that is interesting that in your experience, you've seen that most teams will try to tackle the upgrade in one branch and then keep all of the changes in that one large branch and then merge that at some point, which I, I understand how people get there. At least I think I do, because you update the version and then you basically start working off of whatever's failing and you're going from there. And it does take a amount of discipline and experience to then be able to identify like one particular portion that you can update that will get you closer towards that end result and separate that into its own PR, get that reviewed and merged. So it's just taking these little chunks and keep merging them in the master. So then when you do the final upgrade to that version, ideally you wouldn't have a lot of changes at that point since you've updated most of it in smaller chunks. Yeah, it's almost like inverting the sort of, I guess, obvious or the sort of naive workflow where you would first upgrade the version and then fix all the things that break. And this flow that you're discussing, you're fixing all the things ahead of time and then the final step is upgrading the Rails version rather than being the first step. Yeah, I really like what you said earlier about locking in the win. That part feels great because then you are getting those small wins along the way. You are reducing the risk of having this work that you've poured a lot of time into, and then it's going to get sidelined because I'm willing to bet that's happened to a number of folks where you're working hard on an upgrade, but then product or your team is like, that's great. We really want to do that, but we need to push that aside for now because we have some more important feature work to do. So it kind of becomes this work that someone is doing on the side in their free time and it's not taking the full attention, which is hard to balance because you still need to ship feature work at the same time. So locking in those small wins feels like the right amount to get it done. Rails has a lot of good support for making that workflow much nicer. We were talking earlier about the sort of older style routing helpers, but Rails will usually deprecate in one major version and then only remove it in the next major version. And so if you're on Rails 3 and you're using these sort of deprecated older routing helpers, you can, without upgrading to Rails 4, just use the newer helpers today in your Rails 3 app. And it's going to be fully compatible, and you can ship that to master, and it can go live. And it's not that much work, but that's a win. And that's just removed one more obstacle to your upgrade to Rails 4. So I'm curious, how did it go with giving that document the 27 suggestions that y'all had for the client? How was that feedback received? Do you think that we'll continue to work with them with the upgrade? What does that feel like? Because it's interesting to invest so much into a code base and identify and then have to hand it over, but you don't actually get to be the one to push forward those changes. Yes. After having spent two weeks there, I would have loved to be the person to do the upgrade. I think it will depend on the client. Some of them might want to run with this document and do it themselves. Others might say, great, 
we love what you found out here. Why don't you do it? And then hire us to do the upgrade. So it will vary from one client to another. One of the things that I was, you know, it's a pattern that I've seen before that I really appreciate when doing upgrades like this is, I'm not really sure if it has a name. I like to call it like a shim. So if you have a sort of new API or new code style that comes in in a newer version and you would like to work with it in an older version of the code that doesn't have that API yet, you can write an interface that's compatible with the older version of the framework and sort of mimic what the new code interface will be like, but under the hood, make it work using the old approach. And that allows you to write sort of new style code today rather than waiting until after that upgrade. And a great example of this is the Rails strong parameters gem. So Rails 4 introduced a different way of handling mass assignment of parameters from a form. In Rails 3, you would use the adder, is it not accessible? So have like an allow list of parameters that yeah, are coming yeah. through? Yeah, so, so it's adder protected and adder something else. I forget what it is. Oh, I can't remember either. It's been too long. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's been gone for a long time. But if you want to make your Rails 3 app Rails 4 compatible or more Rails 4 compatible without having to actually upgrade to Rails 4, the Rails team provides a strong parameters gem you can pull in that effectively retrofits strong parameters for older versions of Rails. So your Rails 3 app can be using strong parameters. And then you bring that in and your code base can keep evolving because one of the difficulties is often that while you're doing the upgrade work, your colleagues are adding new features that are incompatible with the upgrades that you've done. So by introducing something like the strong parameters gem, you have now enabled all of your team to write Rails 4 style code while you still work on the upgrade. Yeah, that's really sage advice to go ahead and start trying to adapt to the new API. And as part of that, we can still keep building on top of this because I feel like that would be one of the more painful pieces is understanding that folks are still pursuing forward with an old API that you're going to have to update in bulk at some point. So anything you can do to get ahead of that seems like a really great win. On that note, it has been so wonderful talking to you today, and I think we've had a a pretty incredible journey with everything that we've talked about. So I think it's about time for us to wrap up. But before we do, where can folks find more of your work? So all of my writing is on the ThoughtBot blog. They can go find it there. We'll probably put a link in the show notes. Uh, They can find me on Twitter. I'm at Joel Ken, J-O-E-L-Q-U-E-N. And I've got a few conference talks that are up. I'm sure we'll link to those as well. Definitely. We'll include those in the show notes for sure. All right. Thank you again so much for being on the show. Thank you for inviting me. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. This show is produced and edited by Tom Obarski. If you enjoyed listening, one really easy way to support the show is to leave us a quick rating or even a review in iTunes as it really helps other folks find the show. If you have any feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore bike shed or reach me at svicari on Twitter or host at bikeshed.fm via email. Thanks so much for listening to The Bike Shed, and we'll see you next week. Bye. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. Join our team dedicated to creating products people love to use. With open positions at our studios in Boston, New York, San Francisco, Austin, London, and Raleigh-Durham, come discover a better way to work.